Um, before we begin, we should, uh, I forgot to pray for this before, but be in prayer for Gray and Hannah. Hannah's going in to be induced in the morning, um, you know, unless anything happens between now and then. So be in prayer for Hannah. I just saw her and remembered that. And be in prayer for Grayson, too, please. <laughs> uh, we are picking up our study in the gospel according to John. Um, and here, um, as we think about Jesus and who he is, um, there are many in the world, whether it's Muslims, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberals of one stripe or another, uh, agnostics, secular historians, and frankly, there, there are many, all kinds of people who are perfectly happy to have a Jesus who is merely a wise teacher. So this past week, um, uh, actually the week before really, um, Chris and I were able to get away. Uh, it was Cedarville's spring break, and so we wanted to be near the water, so we went to Cleveland. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by music. I always have been fascinated. I can't play anything. I can't do anything with it except push play. But I'm fascinated by music, and I always wanted to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if I should admit that here, but I always wanted to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you may not know this, but much of, especially the early days of rock and roll, were heavily influenced by gospel music. So, for example, Aretha Franklin. She started her career as a child singing gospel songs at the New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit, where her father was the minister. Jerry Lee Lewis grew up in eastern Louisiana and in his youth began playing piano with two of his cousins, Mickey Gilley, who would later go on to be a country music um, singer, and Jimmy Swaggart, the disgraced TV evangelist. They were cousins, our cousins. Jerry Lee Lewis's mother enrolled him in the Southwest Bible Institute in Waxahachie, Texas, so that he would sing exclusively Christian songs. But according to his biography that I was reading, Lewis, quote, Lewis daringly played a boogie-woogie rendition of My God is Real at a church assembly, which ended his association with the school the same night. Probably the most well-known connection, though, between rock and roll and gospel music was made by Jerry Lee Lewis's um, Sun Records label mate and friend, Elvis. Elvis grew up in an Assembly of God church in Tupelo, Mississippi. And over the course of his career, he actually released three outright gospel albums, even in the peak of his career one of which was entitled, How Great Thou Art. Along with, he also released a couple of Christmas albums. My guess is that some of you have heard some of Elvis's gospel songs. Maybe some of you have some of Elvis's gospel songs. One of the more interesting displays at the Hall of Fame that we saw last week that was, was actually very telling with regards to his actual religious views was a display case of several of the books that Elvis owned. In fact, the description of the display case it read this. Unknown to many are the depth and variety of Elvis Presley's inner life, 
As a black belt in karate, Presley was interested in existentialism, yoga, meditation, and martial arts. He was also an avid reader and traveled with a case of about 200 books. A travel-worn copy of A Spiritual Life, that's the title of a book, bears his handwriting in the margin and offers a glimpse into his thoughts. He writes in the margin of this book, Only giving oneself do you truly open oneself to love. Whatever that means. Another book, which is entitled The Impersonal Life, it's by a man named Joseph Benner, was particularly formative for Elvis. He carried many copies at once in order to give them away to nearly everyone he would meet. Now those books are probably unfamiliar to you. They were unfamiliar to me. But listen to this other description here. In 1964, Elvis met a man named Larry Geller, who was a hairdresser and spiritual seeker. And he would go on to frequently accompany Elvis on tour. On Geller's advice, Elvis began building a huge spiritual, metaphysical, or mystical library. He read and reread that book, The Impersonal Life, which espouses the view that, that God actually resides in all of us. Some of his other favorite books included the autobiography of a yogi, which is a Hindu teacher, and he would also give out copies of that to his friends. I think it's fair to surmise that when we put all of this together, the fact that Elvis released a bunch of gospel albums, but he was really interested and, and influenced by especially Eastern religion, I think it's pretty fair to surmise that when he sang, for example, How Great Thou Art, he either meant How Pretty Good Thou Art, or he meant How Right Up There With All The Other Gods Thou Art. Many people in this world are perfectly happy to have a Jesus who's merely a wise teacher, right up there with the Hindu yogi Norman Vincent Peale or Confucius. But Jesus is not content with that. He, he doesn't leave that option open to us. In fact, in today's passage in the Gospel according to John, Jesus claims outright to be the great I am. He claims, in fact, to be God the Son. Now, before we jump in there, listen to how God describes himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is, we're going to come back to this later, probably next week, actually. But these are God's own words describing himself. This is God describing himself. He says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds like somebody else is describing him. But that's God describing himself. And that description is not simply a description of God the Father, but of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. The God three in one. And until we understand that, until we understand who Jesus is in relation to the Father, we don't understand who Jesus is at all. So, John chapter 8, I'm going to try to explain this. 
The narrative actually begins in verse 12 and it ends in verse 59. You can see in chapter 9, verse 1, that the scene shifts there um, between those two verses, the end of the chapter and the beginning of the next. So I want to I go back and just read this whole section again. Um, and as you read along with me, I'm going to begin in verse 12 and I'm just going to read right through verse 59. And I want you to read along with me. And as you do, I want you to notice a couple of things. The first thing that we have to notice here is where Jesus begins and where he ends. He, in fact, namely, it's the statement, I am. He begins and ends with the statement, I am. But then also notice as we read through this, the escalating tension that continues to develop between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Jews, the religious leaders. We're going to focus on verses 48 to 59 um, this morning and, and next as well. But let me read beginning in verse 12. So John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I uh, came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you can't come. He said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, 
Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works that your father did. They said to him, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of, words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's, let's ask God to help us understand this. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand these things, Lord. That we might understand who Jesus is. That we might believe in him, trust in him, repent of our sins, and cling and hold fast to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Throughout this um, chapter, this account here, Jesus has increasingly laid it all on the line. He, he's just called these Pharisees, as we were reading through this, he's just called these, these Pharisees liars and even the devil's children. He's asked them a series of rhetorical questions. I don't know if you picked up on them, but he says, why do you not understand what I say? Which of you convicts me of sin? Remember, they're, they're looking for ways to kill him. They're looking for an opportunity to convict him of sin that would bring them to administer the death penalty. Why do you not believe me? He says. And ultimately, the reason, he says in verse 47, is this. Whoever hears, 
Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God, Jesus says to them. And so verse 47 there, it stands as the, as the prosecution resting his case to, to pick up the courtroom um, idea through this. The prosecution rests his case when Jesus says these words in verse, verse 47. But at the same time, it's also the judge issuing his verdict. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is because you are not of God, he tells them. That's the verdict of the judge. Well, if we are reading this as that kind of courtroom drama, and that analogy breaks down in a few places... But if we are reading this as kind of a a courtroom drama, in verse 48, what we're seeing is the the Jews, the Pharisees, really the defense, jumping to their feet and and, and issuing a a pointed countercharge. And and really, we should read verse 48 with the picture in our minds of the the Pharisees aggressively jabbing their their finger into Jesus' chest, at least with their words. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They're angry. They're incredibly upset because of what he has been saying. And so when we read this, this kind of whole story together, and we could actually go back and read chapter 7 right along with this. It's really one long story with just this little, uh, if you remember, there's this little break in the middle uh, with the woman caught in the act of adultery at the beginning of chapter 8. But really chapter 7 and 8 kind of go all together as one long narrative. Um, if we read it all together like that, the unbelief of the Pharisees, the unbelief of the religious leadership just gets... It gets angrier and angrier and angrier until by the end of chapter 8, they're standing there with rocks in their hands, but nobody to throw them at. They're standing there with with stones, probably the biggest ones they could pick up, but nobody's skull to crush. But they would like to. They would like to put him to death right then. They tried. This was not an empty threat. They were ready to stone him. They would stone him and then deal with the Romans later. They weren't allowed to do that by Roman law, but that was their law. This anger anger that just develops in this conversation just develops throughout this scene here as they go back and forth. This is so often what happens when people are confronted by their own unbelief. Anger. Especially religious people who believe that they're just fine in God's eyes. There's no need for repentance. We could just smile because God loves us just the way that we are. In the end, Jesus says, you don't even know who God is. You you don't even know who God is. And when people are told that by Jesus himself, it's, it's right here in God's word. When people are told that by, even by Jesus himself, they often react with anger and bitterness and defensiveness and, and self-justification and, and sometimes violence. That's exactly how the Jewish leadership responds here, with violence by the end. And so this morning, I'm going to point out four certainties 
four certain truths that we need to hold on to as we worship Jesus as our Lord. Now, okay, full disclosure. As the sermon kind of unfolded the last couple of days in my study, um, I think it'd be wise to stop after the first point this morning and even maybe make the sermon, I probably shouldn't say this on tape, but make it a little shorter than normal. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, we won't do justice for the other three points. We'll pick those up next week. So we're going to jump in and look at this first certainty, though. And as we begin looking at these, it starts in a dark place. That is this. This is the first certainty. The abuses of Christ are certain. The abuses of Christ are certain. On this point, we are mostly going to be looking at verse 48. Then we're going to come back to verse 59 again, obviously. But really, every time the Pharisees speak in this section, they are abusing Christ. Every time they say something in here. Um, I have in my Bible the words of Christ in red, and that can be dangerous sometimes. It's all God's word. But I kind of like it because it enables us to quickly see who's speaking. And every time there are black words, they're not read. Every time the Pharisees are speaking, or John is describing the Pharisees, they are saying something that could be dis- really just, it's abusing Christ. It is negative towards Christ. It is anger toward Christ. Every single time they speak here. Every question, every statement, every exclamation is made through gritted teeth until they finally pick up rocks to crush his skull. Of course, he escapes. We'll talk about that when we get there. As we read back over this chapter, as we read over it a minute ago, it's pretty easy to see that Jesus has been kind of on the, on the, on the offensive. He's been the one in the, uh, at the prosecutor's uh, stand, so to speak. And, and the Jews, the, these Pharisees, have been, have been busy trying to defend themselves. He began by implying and then really outright telling them that they're not truly free men, that they're slaves to sin and and not even the true children of of Abraham. And then he even goes on so far as to call them sons of the devil. And throughout this drama, as we see this all unfold, uh, there's a bit of of showmanship on the part of the Pharisees. In some ways, they're playing the crowd. Now, remember, back in verse 30, it says that there are many there who believed in him. And so some are there who are, who are watching this all unfold, are at least believing in, in some of Jesus' claims. And so some of what the Pharisees are, are saying and doing here is said and done for the benefit of those watching. Now, that doesn't mean they don't believe what they're saying. They do. It doesn't mean the anger is just a show. It's not. It's real. But it's also maybe put on a little bit so that everybody around knows just how great these Pharisees are. Um, And so what they're doing is trying to regain control of the conflict, put Jesus on the defensive, make him look bad in front of the whole crowd. And frankly, it's, it's kind of a desperate move. Look again at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now remember, this is not a genuine question. 
They're not trying to determine Jesus' ethnicity. This, this was an admission that this was one of their accusations against him. Are we not right in saying? In other words, they've been saying this. They've been spreading this lie for, for a little while now. John chapter 5 and verse 18 tells us that it says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And there in 5.18, in that case, they were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. And we put these two accusations together, this incident and that one in chapter 5. We can see that they were, what this means is that they are working to find any way that they could to convict him of the death penalty. And part of that strategy was spreading this rumor of verse 48. Jesus has stated, even in the previous verses, that their claim to be the offspring of Abraham was wrong. You're not God's children. You're not Abraham's children. And they throw this charge back at him with this baseless rumor that he came from a long line of illegitimate children. That's what they're saying there. Aren't you a Samaritan? Now, we don't really get this in English. Uh, Chris and I have an old pop-up camper, and we like to go camping. And campgrounds, uh, RVers, they have a good Sam club, a good Samaritan. Probably... When we think of the Samaritan, we think of Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. It's even in our pot, even, there's even an RV club about it. It's in our culture out there. Everybody knows the Samaritan was good. But that's not what they mean. And it was not to the Jews. This word was an ugly word. There are certain ugly words in every language. There are insults that nearly everyone agrees are wrong, that they're, they're offensive to use. There are words that even, even unbelieving sailors, if I could put it that way, say, yeah, you shouldn't use those words. There are certain places you shouldn't use those words. Sometimes those especially ugly words are used as racial slurs. To the Jews, this was a racially charged insult. To call Jesus a Samaritan was to call into question his parentage. It's to say that his father is not who he says he is. Not God and not Joseph. It's to call, his, to call into question his mother's reputation. And yet while the Samaritans were an actual group of people, we saw them back in chapter 4, This term here is simply used as a term of racist hatred. But then these sons of the devil, as Jesus has called them, they pile on by claiming that he has a demon. Can you see the irony in that? You do what your father does. Your father's the devil, he has just said. And now they're claiming that he has a demon. Do you see the the bitterness just kind of flowing out of them, the defensiveness to say that someone is particularly Jesus. This is actually a fairly common insult to hurl at Jesus, to say that he had a, um, a demon. It's actually used a few times in the Gospels. 
But when they put these things together, when they say, you're a Samaritan and have a demon, they are implying that the curses, so for example, Psalm 106, verses 34 to 39, they're saying that those curses are about Jesus. You don't have to turn there. Just just listen. I want to read those verses. Um, This is about what happened to Israel when they failed to completely take the promised land. So Psalm 106, 34 to 39 says this. This is a history account. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. This is the accusation against the Samaritans. This is the, the reality of where the Samaritans came from. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with their blood. And they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being the personification of those verses. They're saying that Jesus is that in the flesh. The worst part of Israel's history, that's who Jesus is. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is actually God in the flesh. John tells us that in the first chapter. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. This, this, this statement here in verse 48, it's blasphemy. It's slanderous. But it's common, actually. People claim all the time something to the effect of, this Jesus is not who he claims to be. A wise teacher? Sure. God in the flesh? No. And all this is, really, this statement and all of their defensive statements in this passage, but this one right here, all this really is is a simple rejection of Jesus as the Christ. You're a Samaritan, and you have a demon. And they say this for the crowd to hear, this accusation. In the end, it's all blasphemy. This, This rejection is blasphemy. Mark chapter 3 tells us that the, the unpardonable sin, the sin that can't be forgiven, is a rejection of Jesus as the Christ. And this kind of insulting, violent language is a favorite weapon of the devil. Make no mistake, this is spiritual warfare. This was spiritual manipulation. This this accusation, these words in verse 48, this abuse of Christ, it was thrown out to cause doubt and fear in the minds of those who, who might trust in him. The same goes for verse 53, what they say there. The same goes for verse 57. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or who do you think you are? This guy thinks he's seen Abraham. Imagine standing there as a normal observer, a normal Jewish person watching all of this unfold. You've gone to the temple, probably to worship. He's in the treasury back in verse 20 tells us, so maybe you've gone to offer tithes and offerings as an act of worship. And you're watching all of this unfold. 
Probably you know that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. You know that there's a war inside your soul and you just want peace. You know that there is a God who has, who has had promised to send a Savior, promised to destroy sin and death, to crush the serpent's head, and the, the, the sin and death that just threatens to overwhelm you like a flood. You know that God has made promises. And Jesus is standing there offering freedom, offering life and water and, and bread for your soul. He has said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He has said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He has said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Imagine standing there, pondering these things, thinking about what Jesus has said. Imagine being there wondering, could this be true? Could Jesus be the Savior? Could this guy be the Messiah? Could this guy be my Savior? But then you see the reaction of the most influential people of the nation. And they react like this. In anger and bitterness and hatred. They say, you're a Samaritan. And you have a demon. What would you do? What would you do if you thought, maybe he is telling the truth. Maybe he is God the Son. Can you see that this is spiritual warfare? Satan will use, Satan is real. Our world likes to caricature him, make him into some kind of cartoon character that's not that scary, or make him into something so horrific that it, it, it's detestable. But Satan is real, and Satan will use any tool at his disposal to prevent you from trusting in Jesus Christ, including influential people. Whether it's religious leaders or political leaders or celebrities of some kind or rock stars, anything or anyone he can, he will use to keep you in his own family that you might be his own son. Not because you're loved by the devil. He's using you to destroy all things good and pure and true and right and holy because he hates God, because he hates Jesus, and he hates us. See, at this point in the history of salvation, right here at this point in the history of salvation, conversion, trusting in Christ for salvation, it becomes akin to, to escaping or, or defecting from someplace like North Korea. The North Korean government, to put it in kind of political terms, the North Korean government does not love the Christians it keeps in its prison camps. It does not have a wonderful plan for their lives. 
Its goal is to destroy their will and cause them to completely submit for their own, for the government's own selfish lust for power. The Kim dynasty's own selfish lust for power. So this right here, these events right here, when we think about all of this, this eliminates the possibility of casual Christianity, at least in ancient Jerusalem. Maybe we can still have a a casual Christians here in America where things are still pretty easy. But these people standing here watching this all unfold, they had to deal with this. Those people standing there saying, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Son of God? I want, I want life. I want freedom. I want forgiveness. Could this be my Messiah? They're watching this all unfold and they have to deal with accusations and anger and even violence. The book of Acts tells us that it's only a a couple of years after this, maybe three years later, that persecution of of the brand new Christian church really develops in Jerusalem right here and believers have to run for their lives James will write them a letter later Peter will write them a letter later as these Jewish Christians are running for their lives because of this kind of hatred let me give you some application right here and then we'll move um at least the beginning, the next points. I'm, I'm spending too much time on the first point as usual. The first application is this. It's, these are pretty simple. Consider the cost. Consider the cost. Is it worth it? Seriously. Is being a Christian worth it? Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, l- listen to these words. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And then a couple verses later in Luke 14, He says this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So consider the cost. Is it worth it? As you're standing there watching these slurs be hurled at your Savior, is it worth it? And then the second application is take heart. Take heart. That doesn't just mean cheer up. It means be of good courage. Jesus will say in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world, including those who are bent on destroying your faith, who, those who are bent on destroying the church. The abuse of Christ will almost certainly, in some regard, translate to the abuse of the Christian. Take heart. 
Christ has overcome the world. Do you know what that means? Take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you know what that means? It means that the lies of our enemies have no power in heaven. The lies of our enemies have no power in heaven, no matter how much power they have here. And so we can pray with the psalmist, for example. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. And the answer to that prayer, as we pray with the psalmist, the answer to that prayer might only come when when one of you are dead. Your deliverance might only come through the death of your physical body. Your deliverance might come when you walk into heaven. But until then, this is a lesson I struggle to learn myself. Until then, we must strive to be like Christ in this. Listen to what Peter says of Christ in in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23 to 25. He says this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The abuse of Christ will most certainly lead to the abuse of the Christian. But the lies of our enemies have no power in heaven. None. So take heart. This is where we're going to have to pick up next week, Lord willing. The promises of Christ are even more certain. Just listen to some of his promises, just from what we have seen in this gospel. I want to read you a few promises of Christ. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's another one. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We're going to pick up right there next week. The promises of Christ are certain. Let's pray. Lord, as we... As we read of this, we can see where this is going. We can see that while verse 59 says that, that Christ hid them, himself from them and went out of the temple, he's already said in another point that his time had not yet come. But he said back in chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We can see that this is going to the cross. We can see that this is going to Christ's crucifixion. 
And so even in the abuse of Christ, even in this, the world's hatred and anger toward Christ, we can see redemption, salvation. And so, Lord, we look to the cross, but we look beyond the cross to the resurrection. Jesus' victory over sin and death. We look to his ascension where he sits at your right hand. And Father, we cling to Christ. Help us to remember the promises of God, the promises that you have made to us that are fulfilled and uh, that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Transform our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.